It's Thursday, August 26th, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm Yeri Jero, the host of America's world-class web game, Empire Jeopardy! Today's contestants, he's a vertical urban farmer from Battered, Washington. Meet Jack Browndart. How's it going, Jack? It's growing, Mr. Jero. Up and up and up. He's the commander of former intelligence in Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Colonel, what is Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC? Well, I wasn't in long enough to find that out, Yuri. She's a loan denier for Windjammer Gogol in Jockey Shorts, Illinois. Meet Swendaloo Zimmer. Working hard, Swendaloo? Saying no is becoming a real growth business, Mr. Joe. Well, the rules are as simple as our contestants. Win two and we talk. Lose two and you walk. Tie and you try again next time. Here we go. 221,943,567. What's a number large enough to confuse people? Uh, what is the cost of a B1 stealth fuselage? What is the number of barrels of oil that BP has spilled into the Gulf as of an hour ago? One for you, Jack. I see you stay on top of things. Okay, here we go again. Hiding billions of dollars of debt by not selling what you don't want until you get it back. What is window dressing? That was fast, Swindaloo. Easy. I used to date one of the Lehman brothers when I worked at B of A. Well, we're down to it now. Swindaloo and Jack, maybe we talk. Butter Braunschweig, maybe you walk. Here it is. Red cloak for breakfast. What's the latest gluten-free diet? What is taking an early meeting with the cardinal? What is the Hopi symbol of the cataclysmic purification of America? Bingo! <laughs> yeah, we talked about it all the time at Dreadset. Well, you get to talk some more about it because you tied it up and you'll all be back next time on Empire Jeopardy! I'll bring a PowerPoint with me. Ah, yes. RadioFreeOz.com. Remember, Twitter-wise, Twitter.com slash Oz Network. Follow us. We'll follow you. Make me Pete the Retweet. Our co-host is David Osmond. He'll be with us soon. But in the chair is our our local sheriff, Luther Axhandle, with his county report. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Bergman. And uh, I'm I, I I'm going to learn how to tweet these reports myself because the way they're written here is uh, that's under the necessary uh, how many syllables well, is it? One hundred and forty altogether. Spaces. Altogether with not, spaces. You, you can you can squeeze them th- down. These will all fit. But I mean, I'm telling you, we have had such a week. Uh, on Thursday, I mean, I, it's just virtually everything on the on the sheet. I got to read to you. On Thursday, July the 29th at 1:24 p.m. That's the afternoon. A man he called us up to say a raccoon keeps getting into his garden overnight. Called the sheriff because yeah. a raccoon was getting in his garden every night. This is getting pretty local. Luther. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you. Then right after that, at 1:44, a man with a backpack. Walking along Main Street, started screaming. Oh my golly! Maybe, uh, maybe, I, maybe there was a raccoon in his I, backpack. It could, could have been. I think he was in front of the sheriff's station when he did that. Now, right after that, at seven o four on the very same day, a man found his stolen vehicle while he was out running on Campbell Road. He was running because he didn't have a car. Now, See, those things work here. Yeah, it's, now, that's not the only strange event of, it, of that kind that I can give you. Suspicious cars at 10.58 p.m., almost your 11 o'clock. Suspicious cars were reported near the end of the cul-de-sac on Discovery Place. A later caller uh-huh, uh-huh, said there were weekend renters who were, and I quote, hooting, hollering, and running in the street. Well, that's what you weekend rent for anyway, to hoot and holler and run in the streets. Why why, why come to Whidbey Island if you're not going to hoot and holler? And certainly, we want them to have the freedom and the license to do that, just so long as they don't know barking dogs. We hate right. them barking dogs. And okay. no screaming on Main no Street. No screaming on Main Street. The next, very next day on Friday... At one forty-seven in the afternoon, a caller uh, called up to say that someone, uh, I, I hesitate to, this is a mixed audience out there, but a caller said that someone urinated in a yard on Mountain View Lane. Not only that, but he did so, I assume it's a he, I mean, you never know these days, uh, did so while the caller's five-year-old daughter was nearby. 
No, maybe it was the mountain view that inspired him. He just a field pea was upon him. That you know? was it. He just had to take possession of that piece of territory, that view, right Absolutely. at that very moment. Didn't notice the little child. No, Mark, yeah. Mark, Mark. Uh, okay, now same day Friday, a pilot landing at Porter Airfield didn't put his wheels down while he was landing. Ooh, that's <laughs> tough on the plane. Oh, Scrapey, scrape. Great. No one was hurt. Glad to say that. <clears throat> very but short. Plenty of people were stupid. <laughs> they they were plenty of people running out of the way. Hey, you fool! Uh, 325, a man said his latest tenant in his property uh, left behind an, eight, an 18, a 1989 Toyota Camry. Just just left it behind. Just left now it this, behind. Now, this, we're creeping up on the car stuff here, Mr. Bergman. Here's one at 430. A caller found a red 1990 Honda Prelude with a for sale sign left in a driveway on Fisherman's Alibi Lane and called the number on the signs. The owner didn't know how the vehicle ended up there. Well, there you go. There's a fisherman's alibi for you to begin with. <laughs> oh, honey, I don't know my car. I, I never, I don't know anybody there. A man was standing at the end of a driveway on Honeymoon Bay Road and was shouting obscenities. He later moved across the street but kept yelling. Well, that you know, that kind of a stereo obscenity guy. Anymore, this is well, it, huh? No, I no, it's not. I mean, we've been happening here. A man said he was having problems with his sister's husband who threw a bowl of cereal at his wife earlier in the day. A cereal killer. Yeah, there you go. In the go. making. Oh, Mr. Bergman, I, I, I don't know. I'll finish up with this one. A caller said two men were throwing up and urinating in public on Highway 525 near the post office, and the caller suspected that the pair may have been drinking. Yeah, I think so. This is from a very interesting blog called America at War. Well worth taking a look at. It's official. Although careful not to leave any footprints, the U.S. has boots on the ground in Pakistan. This was revealed on Thursday, the 22nd of July, when U.S. lawmakers Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul introduced a resolution in the House of Representatives, quote, directing the president, pursuant to Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution Act, to remove the United States Armed Forces from Pakistan. I go on to quote, we have known that U.S. forces have been operating in secret inside the territories of Pakistan without congressional approval. We recently learned from an article in the Wall Street Journal titled U.S. Forces Step Up Pakistani Presence that the United States is engaged in a covert strategy to increase our troops' role there incrementally with the goal of convincing Pakistan to be more accepting of our presence. This is a violation of the 1973 War Powers Resolution, and it is our constitutional responsibility as members of Congress to act, said Kucinich. We became enmeshed in a war against Vietnam with advisors leading the way, and we are seeking to nip in the bud an expansion of U.S. ground presence in Pakistan. The Wall Street Journal had reported that after waiting for months to, for approval from the Pakistan Army, the first 30 special operations troops arrived in Pakistan in October of 2008, within days after President Zadari took office in September of that year. In the guise of military trainers, we're here to train the military. Today, the U.S. has about 120 to 200 trainers in the country with an expanded scope of mission, and the program is set to expand further. The ghost of Vietnam is floating in this room. While it is public knowledge that U.S. and allied intelligence agencies and contracted mercenaries have been operating by recruiting spies, bribing, and assassinating targets inside Pakistan, this bill confirms the long-suspected presence of regular U.S. military forces in Pakistan. In two reports in The Nation, Jeremy Scahill has reported that in parallel with the CIA, soldiers from the Joint Special Operations Command of the U.S. Special Operations Command, each with its own Blackwater and other contracted personnel, deadly drunk mercenaries, were thought to be operating in Pakistan, recruiting spies, well, there's good work, running faux terrorists. That sounds very Parisian. Oh, look at that. I'm wearing the faux terrorists. Staging apparent terrorist incidents, buying friends, bribing the recalcitrant, and assassinating targets. They could shake hands with the Taliban. A much wider presence, however, was first confirmed by Christina Lamb's story in the New York Times on three JSOC soldiers in civilian clothes who were killed in Lower Deer while on their way to inaugurate a girls' school built with U.S. money. 
This is just a this ironically horrible uh, a scenario. I mean, it, it begs for black humor. Expectedly, the Kucinich poll resolution failed to carry by 38 to 372 votes on July 27th. Right now, it's a dead issue. So, only the citizens of Pakistan, including those sworn to protect the sovereignty of Pakistan, can now, according to Kucinich and Paul, remove the United States armed forces from Pakistan. Get going. I'm basically, I'm an optimist, Dave, and I've always believed that the American public can bounce back from wherever they are. I mean, and, and slowly, that confidence has been eroded, all right? And I'm, I'm always looking for the good side. But then I read that, a substantial and growing number of Americans say that Barack Obama is a Muslim, while the proportion saying he's a Christian has declined. Uh, uh, excuse me. I mean, I just, I don't care how many times those gizmos on Fox and all of those uh, ayatollahs, you know, with crosses burned into their heads, tell you he is a Muslim. The fact that anybody would believe this is beyond my ken. More than a year and a half into his presidency, a plurality of the public says they do not know what religion Obama follows. This is a man that has uh, pastors over all the time who gets biblical quotes on his Blackberry every day, who goes to church every Sunday and appears to mean it, who has a fabulous uh, house, you know, you know uh, 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 married life. Nobody wears a veil, right? And yet they're not sure. A new national survey by the Pew Research Center, which is a pretty good one, oh, says yeah. one in five Americans now say Obama's a Muslim. One out of every five people on the street says the man is a Muslim. That's up from 11% mm. a year ago. Mm. Only about one-third of adults of adults say that Obama's a Christian, down from 48%. That's huge. And 48% say, I don't know what religion he's got. All right, so the view that Obama's a Muslim is more widespread among political opponents than the backers. Roughly a third of conservative Republicans say he's a Muslim, as do 30% who disapprove of his job performance. When asked how they they learned about Obama's religion in an open-ended question, 60% of them say they say Obama's a Muslim, cite the media. Among specific media sources, television, 16%. Uh, 11% say that Obama's a Muslim. They learned it through Obama's own words and behavior. Like what? This was, this was done before he supported the mosque. Oh, yeah. It's before he got up and said, mm. May, basically, I think there's something called freedom of religion, and these people are just building a mosque, and I think we ought to, you know, oh, he's a Muslim. And what else? Oh, yes. And here's a couple of questions that were asked. Just, do you think the Muslims should be allowed to run for the president of the United States? Yes, 61%. No, 32%. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Should a Muslim serve on the Supreme Court? Yes, 65%. No, 28%. 28%. It is a, it is a truism in this country for as 40 years, at least, of my experience, that a third of the people in the country are either absolutely right or dead wrong. Yeah. And a third of the people are so hopelessly ignorant or so unwilling to fight another war, depending upon which decade you're talking about. Now we've got a third of the pe- You didn't give the figures about the people who now don't believe that he has a passport or a birth certificate. Oh, that's all part of it. I'm sure yeah, that, the they're full right? goes in because anybody that says yeah. he doesn't have a birth certificate. And who was it uh, <clears throat> that said, uh, oh, yes. There, talk about bad seed dropping from a fairly good tree. Billy Graham's son. You know, Billy Graham, you may not be big into Christian missionary and all, yada, yada, but the fact is that Billy Graham was a basically good man, did not say people were going to hell, worked through many administrations without making any real political moves. He was, he was a— Pro- Probably kept Richard Nixon from going totally stark-raving yeah, right, mad. Yeah, he was the first stadium preacher. Yeah. Well, and, and a fairly okay guy. I shared mm. a stage with him once when I did one of my TEDs. He was there, and he mm-hmm. was a nice person to talk with, okay? So his son, who has now taken over, right, says that the problem that, that with—, with Obama is that he's got the seed of Muslimism in him, that he was born a Muslim and can never shake it. Now, he wasn't Ooh. born a Muslim. He wasn't born a Muslim. But that's so weird. That's the, the seed. Ba- the seed. Oh, the, the bad seed of Muslimism. What, what's, what bothers me about mm-hmm. all of this, the mm-hmm. secure communities kicking out people who yep. are innocent, the seed, this is, and I, I don't 
I use this word and it doesn't capture it, but I'm trying to find a better one. It's very Nazi-like. I mean, I don't like to throw this word around because, of course, it's not a country completely Excuse hungry. Me, that's, to, the, that's the N-word. That truly is. That's the N-word, Pete. So everybody's uh, patting the Obama administration on the back because we're getting out of Iraq on time. Sounds right, but it isn't. The New York Times tells us that as the United States military prepares to leave Iraq by the end of 2011, the Obama administration is planning a remarkable civilian effort buttressed by a small army of contractors to fill the void. When I see the phrase, army of contractors, I don't see a lot of people building swimming pools on my street. I see a lot of mercenaries and droneoids, and it makes my skin crawl. By October 2011, the State Department will assume responsibility for training the Iraqi police, a task that will largely be carried out by contractors. Where in the world did anybody come up with the idea of having the State Department train police in a foreign country? That's not what they traditionally do. There's this thing called hmm, diplomacy. With no American soldiers to defuse sectarian tensions in uh, northern Iraq, it will be up to American diplomats in two new $100 million outposts to head off potential confrontations between the Iraqi army and the Kurdish Peshmerga forces. Oh, that's good. State Department employees and their contractors will be in these two huge compounds trying to keep the Peshmerga, right, the Kurds, and the Iraqis apart. More blood, more war. We're going back to protect the civilians in a country that is still home to insurgents, which it certainly is, uh, home to insurgents and a lot more. Uh, And it's filled with al-Qaeda and Iranian-backed militias. The State Department is planning to more than double its private security guards, up to as many as 7,000, according to administration officials, who disclosed new details of the plan. Defending five fortified compounds across the country, the security contractors would operate radars to warn of enemy rocket attacks, search for roadside bombs, fly reconnaissance drones, and even staff quick reaction forces to aid civilians in distress, the official said. It's the State Department in uniform, you know? Be all the diplomat you can be, you know? Reload. I don't think state has ever operated on its own, independent of the U.S. military, in an environment that is quite as threatening on such a large scale, says James Dobbins, a former ambassador who has seen his share of trouble spots as a special envoy to Afghanistan, Bosnia, Haiti, Kosovo, and Somalia. It is unprecedented in scale. These are all such nice kind of diplomatic words. It's vakakt! The tiny military presence under the Obama administration's plan, limited to several dozen to several hundred officers in an embassy office who would help the Iraqis purchase and field new American military equipment, and the civilians' growing portfolio have led some veteran Iraqans to suggest that thousands of additional troops will be needed after 2011. Oh my, really, just about time for the election we find out that we're not leaving Afghanistan and we're going back to Iraq. Hoop-dee-doo. Such an arrangement would need to be negotiated with Iraqi officials, why we never negotiated with them before, who insisted on the 2011 deadline in the agreement with the Bush administration for removing American forces. With the Obama administration in campaign mode for the coming midterm elections and Iraqi politicians yet to form a government, the question of what future military presence might be needed has been all but banished from public discussion. Well, I'm bringing it back. Well, it looks like the Native Americans are, are, are getting, getting their due. Uh, the Navajo, Hopi, and all Apache nations and all other Native Americans who presently reside in Arizona have joined forces in an effort to show the haughty Arizona residents just exactly who has every right to be in that state. Uh-huh. Said Chief Standing Wolf, it is not those of European descent who should be making the laws of this state, but we, the tribal people, who have been suppressed for too long. Our ancestors have been here for thousands of years, while the white man only came a few hundred years ago. Yet it is the white man who wants to make ridiculous laws and keep everything lily white. We can no longer stand by and let this happen. Short of declaring war on the Arizona government, Chief Standing Wolf instead issued a warning. 
Quote, reverse your laws entitling only English-speaking people to inhabit Arizona. Only then will we back down and allow peace to again grace Arizona. But if you deny our fellow red and brown men their rightful place in the state, there will be bloodshed. Of course, Chief Standing Wolf was speaking in his native tongue, so the lawmakers in the state weren't exactly sure what the message was. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Was he uh, Navajo? Not, not Navajo? Or, or he I, doesn't say. Huh? I couldn't tell. You know, it's it, the war paint was mm. such it could have been anybody. Could have been it could have been a Cleveland Indian for all uh, I know. Oh, really? You think so? Well, you know, uh, it, I don't they, know. They've that been is, at the bottom of the heap. I was going to say time. they they have been you know they have been there for thousands of years, and their casinos have been there. For quite a while as well. And since, you know, a lot of tax income for the state of Arizona is probably coming from casinos on Indian land, wouldn't you expect? Well, I Or have they given that up in Arizona? I don't know. All I know is that the white man was the worst bet they ever took. This is part two of The Shadow Wars, uh, a lengthy article in the New York Times, which describes what has become... Barack Obama's war, not Afghanistan, but all of the covert operations that we are promoting around the world using a militarized CIA, a, a, mo, a more covert um, uh, Pentagon, and lots of independent contractors and mercenaries who are dirty, doing our dirty quiet business. Recently, we sent a cruise missile into a a suspected al-Qaeda training camp in Yemen and ended up killing the very local leader who was responsible or in the process of trying to bring al-Qaeda back into the fold. It was a a terrible mistake, Uh, but there it was, and we had to take responsibility for it. Do you think it stopped anything? No. Uh -uh. It was part of the scalpel approach that the Obama administration is promoting, but uh, administration officials w- warn of the growing strength of Al Qaeda. You know, citing as evidence its attempt on December 25th to blow up a transatlantic jetliner using a young Nigerian operative. Some American officials believe that militants in Yemen could now pose an even greater threat than Al Qaeda's leadership in Pakistan. So, what are we going to do? The officials, the official said. They have benefited from the Yemeni government's new resolve to fight al-Qaeda and that the American strikes carried out with cruise missiles and Harrier fighter jets had been approved by Yemen's leaders. The strikes, administration officials say, have killed dozens of militants suspected of plotting future attacks. The Pentagon and the CIA have quietly bulked up the number of their operatives at the embassy in Sanaa, the Yemeni capital, over the year. Where we want to get to is to much more small-scale, preferably locally-driven operations, said Representative Adam Smith, Democrat of Washington, who serves on the Intelligence and Armed Services Committee. What does he really mean by that? Small-scale, preferably locally-driven operations? How can they lead the operations? They don't have the cruise missiles. They don't have the Harrier jets. All they can do is bob up and down and say, yes, sir. For the first time in our history, an entity has declared a covert war against us, Mr. Smith said, referring to al-Qaeda, and we are using similar elements of American power to respond to that covert war. What they have declared, how can you take a ragtag organization and, and, and equate them to a national to a national entity. It's not like Poland has, has declared war in the United States. Al-Qaeda has. Who is Al-Qaeda, right? And, and so we're at war with some group. This is really serious stuff. Some security experts draw parallels to the Cold War, when the United States drew heavily on covert operations as it fought a series of proxy battles with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union ain't Al-Qaeda. It's Russia. And some of the central players of those days have returned to take on supporting roles in the shadow war. Michael G. Vickers, who helped run the CIA's campaign to funnel guns and money to the Afghanistan Mujahideen in the 1980s and was featured in the book and movie Charlie Wilson's War, is now the top Pentagon official overseeing special operations troops around the globe. Vickers. The man who got us in there, the man who screwed everything up, the man who left us with what? Left us with an armed group of Mujahideen who have since used their stingers and everything else to kill Americans. He's the man in charge now. It really makes you wonder. Okay, now, oh, that's that's not the end. I mean, he's nothing compared to Dwayne Claridge, or Dewey Claridge, I think is his nickname, a profane former CIA officer who ran operations in Central America and was indicated uh, in the uh, Iran-Contra scandal. He turned up this year helping to run a Pentagon-financed private spying operation in Pakistan. 
All the old bummers are back. These are bad people. They should have been retired, if not jailed, at least retired. In pursuing this strategy, the White House is benefiting from a unique political landscape. Republican lawmakers have been unwilling to take Mr. Obama to task for aggressively hunting terrorists, and many Democrats seem eager to embrace any move away from the long, costly wars begun by the Bush administration. So, no long, costly wars, just lots of short, costly wars. Still, it has astonished some old hands of the military and intelligence establishment. Jack Devine, a former top CIA clandestine officer who helped run the covert war against the Soviet army in Afghanistan in the 1980s, said his records show that he was not exactly a cream puff when it came to advocating secret operations. But he warned that the safeguards introduced after congressional investigations into clandestine wars of the past, from CIA assassination attempts to the Iran-Contra affair, in which money from secret arm dealings with Iran Iran was funneled to right-wing rebels in Nicaragua, known as the Contras, were beginning to be weakened. We got the covert action programs under well-defined rules after we had made mistakes and learned from them, he said. Now we're coming up with a new model, and I'm concerned there are no clear rules. Hey, Mr. Obama, what about some nice, clear rules? You got a nice, clear head? How about some nice, clear rules? The initial American strike in Yemen came on December 17th, hitting what was believed to be a Qaeda training camp in Abiyan province in the southern part of the country. The first report from the Yemeni government said that its air force had killed around 34 Qaeda fighters there and that others had been captured elsewhere in coordinated ground operations. The next day, Mr. Obama called President Saleh to thank him for his cooperation and pledge continuing American support. Mr. Saleh's approval for the strike, rushed because of intelligence reports that Qaeda suicide bombers might be headed to Sana, was the culmination of the administration's efforts to win him over, including visits by Mr. Brennan and General Petraeus, then the commander of military operations in the Middle East. The accounts of the American strikes in Yemen, which include many details that have not previously been reported, are based on interviews with American and Yemeni officials who requested anonymity because the military campaign in Yemen is classified, as well as documents from Yemeni investigators. We are running classified military operations around the world. This is a scandal. It's a dangerous scandal. As word of the December 17th attack filtered out, a very mixed picture emerged. The Yemeni press quickly identified the United States as responsible for the strike. Qaeda members seized on video of dead children and joined a protest rally a few days later, broadcast by Al Jazeera, in which a speaker shouldering an AK-47 rifle appealed to Yemeni counter-terrorism troops. Soldiers, he said, you should know we do not want to fight you, the Qaeda operative standing amid angry Yemenis declared. There is no problem between you and us. The problem is between us and America and its agents. Beware taking the side of America. A Navy ship offshore had fired the weapon in the attack, a cruise missile loaded with cluster bombs. According to a report by Amnesty International, unlike conventional bombs, cluster bombs disperse small munitions, some of which do not immediately explode, increasing the likelihood of civilian casualties. The use of cluster munitions, later documented by Amnesty, was condemned by human rights groups. We are sending in cluster bomb-laden cruise missiles into suspected Qaeda camps as part of a classified Yemeni secret war. We are in deep, deep doo-doo. This is Sharzad Hackerthumb for the Stake a Heart Foundation. I'm proud that America is making it possible for gay people to come out of the closet all over this great country of ours. Now it's time to let another oppressed minority have their day in the sun. I'm talking about the millions of vampires across the land who are yearning to come out of the casket. Let Karl Rove uncap his fangs and be the uncompromising bloodsucker he was born to be 10,000 years ago. Release John Bomer from his daily ordeal at the tanning salon where he goes to mask his natural pasty white shade of the newly dead. Allow LeBron James to reveal the real source of his amazing athletic powers and arrogant personality. Free Sarah Palin to explain why she chose to leave a state with endless nights. It's time we put a human face on those countless Americans who look in the mirror every morning and see no one looking back. This is Sharzad Hackerthumb for the Stake of Heart Foundation. And you've got Oz in your ears.
This is from Talking Points Memo. There are a few politicians I really like and who can make me laugh, and one of them is Representative Alan Grayson. And he isn't taking any chances with his re-election, attacking all of his potential opponents as they fight each other in the GOP primary. This is down in Florida. But he's saving his harshest line for his likely rival, Daniel Webster, or as Grayson calls him, Taliban Dan. Why? Well, it's all here in this letter that, that Grayson wrote Dan, here, in his own words. Okay, he says, My opponent, Dan Webster, endorsed in the primary by the Orlando Sentinel and by Jeb Bush, may not have a clue on what to do about joblessness, homelessness, expensive health care, no money for schools or endless war, but he does know what to do about divorce. Ban it. In the Florida legislature, Dan Webster sponsored and supported a bill to institute covenant marriage. In a covenant marriage, you can't get divorced. So Dan Webster's bill reduces the institution of marriage to a roach motel. You can check in, but you can't check out. With one exception, adultery. So let's say that your husband, God forbid, has been abusing you and you need a divorce. You have only one option. According to Dan Webster's law, you would need to deliberately commit infidelity in order to get a divorce. Ah, but here's the catch. Under Dan Webster's law, if both parties cheat on each other, then they can't get a divorce ever. No, they're locked in holy matrimony forever, like two scorpions in a bottle. So if you cheat on him to get away from him, and it turns out that he's cheating on you, well then, you're in the bottle. There is only one place in the entire world where both divorce and annulment are forbidden. The Taliban government in northwest Pakistan. And Taliban Dan wants to institute the same rule here. The man with a 19th century name wants to pass 13th century laws, which you and I will have to live by. Well, thank you, Alan. And incidentally, Webster has won the endorsement of former GOP presidential candidate Mike Huckabee, who supports covenant marriage so much that he's actually involved in one. Think about it. In a scorpion bottle with Mike Huckabee. Got her hands in her pockets and she's waiting for a downtown train. Yeah, and the high heel boots with the straps on low and her head hanging down in shame. Oh, 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 oh. The wolves all dress up just like sheep and they go and hit the town. And Sharon never sees them, but they're hanging all around. Sweet little cherry got a switchblade, Jimmy, come and take her down at 4th and May. Her mind in a haze of the better days before her body was an ad campaign. And pocketbooks are all that Sherry sees. The dashboard dogs and backseat hogs and down onto her knees. Yeah, I am tempted, I am weak. Yes, I'm too weak to try to speak. Oh no. Yeah, I am tempted, I'm ashamed. Yeah, I'm ashamed and I'm to blame. Oh, Took the last bus home in the middle of the pouring rain. She saw the 
bad boys sleeping and the good girls weeping through the fog on the window panes. Oh, 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 oh. Cherry wants to make it right, but she never has a prayer. Cause as long as there are bad boys, they'll be penny millionaires. Yeah, I am tempted, I am weak, yeah. I'm too weak to try to speak, oh no. I am tempted, I'm ashamed, yeah. I'm ashamed, I'm to blame, oh. If you have a moment, uh, we'd love for you to join us on Twitter. This is a, a whole new social network outreach that we're getting into. Uh, and I think Twitter is is a really good way for people to meet each other and to know Oz and to spread Oz. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Oz Network and click on the follow button. And we'll be making some announcements on Twitter soon and you won't want to miss them. Okay, well, even if you do want to miss them, go up because that's your choice. There isn't a woman pundit in America that pisses off the right wing more than Maureen Dowd. And here's why. I'm reading in entirety one of her op-eds from the New York Times. At the Bunch of Grapes bookstore on Martha's Vineyard, the sojourning President Obama bought a few books, including To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. It was for his daughter, but it may also have conjured a sweet memory for the beleaguered president. Only a couple of years ago, when he was campaigning, Obama inspired comparisons with the noble lawyer Atticus Finch. Now, after flipping about on some hot-button issues, most recently the plan for an Islamic community center and mosque near Ground Zero, he's more likely to be painted by disillusioned supporters as Atticus Flinch. The bookstore gave the president a copy of Freedom, a new novel by Jonathan Franzen, about a dysfunctional family in America. This is apt, since Obama is the head of the dysfunctional family of America, a rational man running a most irrational nation, a high-minded man in a low-minded age. The country is having some weird mass nervous breakdown with the right spreading fear and disinformation that is amplified by the poisonous echo chamber that is the modern media environment. The dispute over the Islamic Center has tripped some deep national lunacy. The unbottled anger and suspicion concerning Ground Zero show that many Americans haven't flushed the trauma of 9-11 out of their systems, making them easy prey for fear mongers. Many people still have a confused view of Muslims, and the president seems unable to help navigate the country through its Islamophobia. It is a prejudice stoked by Rush Limbaugh, who mocks Imam Obama as America's first Muslim president, and by the evangelist Franklin Graham, who bizarrely told CNN's John King, I think the president's problem is that he was born a Muslim. His father was a Muslim. The seed of Islam is passed through the father, like the seed of Judaism is passed through the mother. Sig Heil! Graham added, The teaching of Islam is to hate the Jew, to hate the Christian, to kill them. Their goal is world domination. Yeah, your goal is world domination. A poll last week by the Pew Research Center tracked a strange spike in the number of Americans who believe, despite all evidence to the contrary, that Obama is a Muslim. And even the ones who don't think he's a Muslim don't necessarily believe he's a Christian. The percentage of Americans who now believe that our Christian president is a Muslim has risen to 18%. That's almost one out of every five bozo on the street. It was 12% when Obama ran for president. That's shocking enough. And 11% after his inauguration. Just as some Americans once feared that John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was a Catholic, would build a tunnel to Rome, now some fear that Barack Hussein Obama, whose name sounds scary to a lot of people, remember that sheriff? who stood up in front of a, a Palin appearance during the campaign in Florida and said, he, the woman running against Barack Hussein Obama, he subsequently lost his job. 
Well, they worry that he will build a tunnel to Mecca. In Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, a history of such national follies as England's South Sea Bubble and Holland's Tulip Frenzy, the Scottish historian Charles Mackay observed, Men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly, one by one. He also concluded that people are more prone to believe the wondrously false than the wondrously true. Of all the offspring of time, error is the most ancient and is so old and familiar an acquaintance the truth, when discovered, comes upon most of us like an intruder and meets the intruder's welcome, McKay wrote, adding that a misdirected zeal in matters of religion befogs the truth most grievously. Well put. You can have an opinion on the New York mosque for or against, but there aren't two sides to the question of whether Obama is a Muslim. As Daniel Patrick Monaghan said, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. How can a man who has written two best-selling memoirs and been on TV so much that most Democrats worried he was overexposed be getting less known and more misunderstood by the day? The president, who is always talking about wanting to be perfectly clear, is even more opaque. The one who owes his presidency to the intense feeling he stirred up turns out to be a practical guy who can't deal with intense feeling. He ran as a man apart. Joe Biden was enlisted to folksy him up. And now he must deal with the fact that many see him as a man apart. Too lofty to pay heed to the daily bump and grind of politics, Obama has failed to present himself as someone with the common touch. And to the extent that people don't know him or don't get him, he becomes easier to demonize. Obama is the victim of the elevated expectations he so skillfully created in 2008. He came as a redeemer and then, tied up in W's Gordian knots, dragged down by an economy leached by wars and Wall Street charlatans, didn't redeem. And nothing bums out a nation that blows with the wind like a self-appointed messiah who disappoints. So if we're not the ones we've been waiting for, who are we? Well, you know, Peter, I do uh, like to interrupt the show with uh, meaningless statistics and, uh, and you know, questionable, uh, questionable analyses of facts, factoids in this, uh, in this wonderful program that is so dominated by, by truth and by reality that sometimes— Dominated by truth? I got, by, a, I got yeah. a blog, right? You got a blog? Well, when you go up to, to Oz right now in the archives, yeah. you can go in. Each archive is, is, a, is a blog post, so you can go in there and do comments. And one person said, uh, I could read it. I will read it directly another time. It said, I, I played the, uh, Oz. I was at the office playing Oz, and one of my older coworkers said, there's almost too much truth in that show. Uh. So he said, hey, there ought to be a mug that says Radio Free Oz. Too much truth? Too much truth. So well, here's another little bit of truth or two. Yeah. The airlines in 2009 generated $2.7 billion in revenue from fees for checking bags. $2.7 billion, billion dollars from your fees of checking your bags. So here's a big, here's a big finger in your face from the airlines. Thank you very much. Uh, since you might have thought that they would never find an older animal than uh, something called the Kimberella, a snail that lived 555 million years ago. I love the accuracy of science. It lived 550 million years ago, and it lived well. 555 million years ago, it lived in Australia and had a summer place in Russia at that time. It was now scientists suddenly believe something completely different. Well, really? Oh, they can push that date back tens of millions of years. Sponge-like creatures may have existed. Remember the sponge-like creatures who soaked up 10% of all life? Yeah. Well, here they are. They may have existed 635 million years ago or earlier during a period of time I never knew existed, which is called the cryogenian. And if you think that was an ice age, this was one where the entire planet's surface froze over. Snowball Earth, okay? Persisting through Snowball Earth was this sponge, we think it was about the size of a thumb, said, said this scientist at Princeton. And it just had a series of holes where it sucked seawater in, which helped keep it at the same temperature and pull in nutrients. He and his colleagues suspect that the sponges had a hard shell but don't have sufficient evidence to show this. 
man, 600 million years ago. Don't you dare tell Sarah Palin her world oh, oh, will collapse. Oh, you think so? Well, here's the question that Sarah needs to answer. Our need now is to figure out, how, could animals have evolved twice? Doubtful, but it does open up a whole new series of questions. Sarah, evolution doubled? Oh, no, this is a real God problem. Drink me. Must be some way out of this. I'll change the air. That's what I'll do. Let's see. What have I got left on the climate control? Uh, dust storm? No. Tibetan wilderness? Land of the pharaohs. Land of the pharaohs. That sounds great. Here we are in the land of the pharaohs. Oh, no! <laughs> well, we'll need to talk with the natives. Uh, does anyone here know a little Egyptian? Your next shopping trip may not be as convenient as it used to be. The second quarter earnings season brought news from several major retailers that they will be shutting down stores. Both Saks and Abercrombie & Fitch said they were closing stores in several parts of the country. Meanwhile, other stores like the struggling blockbuster video rental chain continue to slash stores by the dozens. American Apparel, which is close to defaulting on its loans, may be the next. Consumers just aren't shopping the way they used to. Even Walmart stores, which typically fares well during tough economic times, is worried. The slow economic recovery will continue to affect our customers, and we expect they will remain cautious about spending, said President and CEO Mike Duke in a statement that was uh, released uh, during the company's second quarter earnings report. With the prospects for economic recovery iffy at best and consumer spending still moving at a snail's pace, it's little wonder that retailers are sussing out their weakest stores and closing them in order to protect profits. Retailers say they are positioning themselves to play where they can be strongest and avoid burning resources in places that won't produce the results they want. Here are some of the biggest store closings of late. All right, Saks. They're closing five stores. The Looks Department Store Company plans to close down two Saks Fifth Avenue stores in Plano, Texas, and Mission Viejo, California. Uh, that's in addition to stores in San Diego, Portland, Oregon, and Charleston, South Carolina, that Saks closed a month earlier. The Saks CEO said there uh, may be more stores closing to come this year. French Connection. Number of stores going down, 17. The clothing company with the edgy FC UK ads closed all but six of its U.S. stores as part of a reorganization. I guess they were just FC UK'd. A&P. Oh, I grew up with the A&P. That was like the grocery center. That's where we took all of our fat for the boys fighting over in Iwo Jima. Number of stores closing? 25. The Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company said it will close 25 grocery stores across five states by the end of the third quarter as part of a turnaround strategy. <laughs> They're going to turn around face the other way. American Eagle Outfitters, 28 stores going down. Winn-Dixie stores, 30. Great Atlantic, the A&P, isn't the only supermarket chain reducing its store count. Winn-Dixie stores announced in late July it will close 30 older and underperforming stores by September 22nd. The stores are located across five southern states, but more than half are in the company's home state of Florida. The Bebe stores, 48, are going to be shuttered. Having Kim Kardashian as a fashion muse didn't help lift sales at PH8, a sportswear offshoot of Bebe stores, which has hired the reality star as a designer. A bad mistake. The woman's apparel chain announced in July it would shutter all 48 PH8 stores after a year of flagging sales. They had people outside with flags trying to get people in. Didn't help. Men's Warehouse. 50 to 60 stores going down. Oh, I'm going to miss those. The men's apparel chain... The men's apparel chain plans to close 50 to 60 of the tuck stores, right, this year in an effort to recapture most of the traffic at the company's other stores. Abercrombie and Fitch, 60 stores. Abercrombie and Fitch will close nearly 60 underperforming stores in 2010, most of them towards the end of the year. I'm not surprised. I went into Abercrombie and Fitch down in Santa Monica a year ago and I still lived in L.A., or maybe it was two years ago, and they had this whole new art approach, basically naked men. 
as a way of somehow bringing people into the store. Well, it didn't work. The company already closed 11 stores during the first half of the year, mainly at its flagship Abercrombie & Fitch stores. Flagship. The, sh the ship is sinking. Uh, um, charming shops. Not familiar with them. and I'm going to be less familiar because 100 to 120 of them are going down. They're the... Um, are the parent of Lane Bryant and Fashion Bug, and they're going to take 100 to 120 stores and put them in the dumper. Blockbuster, 500 to 545 stores. Under assault by video on demand and online video rentals, Blockbuster announced earlier this year plans to close 500 to 545 stores by the end of this year. That's in addition to the 374 it closed last year. Okay? So, by my count... That's 939 stores. Let's guess they employ 50 a store, okay, in general, because Saks more maybe and Bebe less, who knows. That's about 4,690 jobs down the drain. The Big Dipper just keeps getting bigger. Well, David, our dear friend Brian Wesley send, sent us this. It's, it seems the Minneapolis City Attorney's Office has decided to pay seven zombies and their attorney $165,000. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, zombies no. with zombies. a Z. Here. With a Z. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, people say, "How do we put people back to work? How do we r restart the economy?" Maybe being a zombie. Or their attorney pays off. I think being their attorney is probably is pretty good money. But The payout approved you know. by the city council settles a federal lawsuit that the seven filed after they were arrested and jailed for two days for dressing up like zombies in downtown Minneapolis on July 22nd, 2006 to protest mindless consumerism. <laughs> and that was way back in 2006. Yeah, when mindless consumerism was rampant. <laughs> oh, boy. When arrested at the intersection of Hennepin Avenue and 6th Street, this sounded like Luther or axe handle No again. kidding. Most of them had thick white powder and fake blood on their faces and dark makeup around their eyes. They were well, walking in a stiff, lurching fashion and carrying four bags of sound equipment to amplify music from an iPod when they were arrested by police who said they were carrying equipment that simulated weapons of mass destruction. Simulated. Oh, yeah, okay. simulated. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, however, they were never charged with any crime. Although U.S. District Judge John, or excuse me, Joan Erickson, had dismissed the zombies lawsuit, it was resurrected in February by a three-judge panel of the eighth <laughs> U.S. Were, so to speak. Yeah. So, we, well, you know, they were thinking out of the box. <laughs> okay. Uh, by a three-judge panel of the eighth U.S. Court of Appeals, which concluded the police lacked probable cause to arrest the seven, a decision setting the stage for a federal trial this fall. The settlement means there will be no trial. I'm so glad to hear that. Oh, but did, the, they, did they have to show up in their original makeup and costumes? Uh, and probably did, because mindless consumerism is still an issue. Another fine day on Oz uh, or night, depending on when you've got it in your ears, doesn't matter. You know, sun comes up, the sun comes down, Oz is always ready to please. And we're going to please you with another Tang poem before we disappear into the mist. And out of the mist comes Tufu in the spring of 768. Night thoughts afloat. Float along with us. By bent grasses in a gentle wind, under straight mast, I'm alone tonight. And the stars hang above the broad plain, but moons afloat in this great river. Oh, where's my name among the poets? Official rank, retired for ill health. Drifting, drifting. What am I more than a single gull between sky and earth? I feel like that sometimes too, David, a single <laughs> gull between sky and earth. Sky begins and end, and the earth retreats. Well, we're not retreating. We're just kind of retweeting here on Radio Free Oz, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. Or maybe we'll just turn around and be in front of you tomorrow. Who knows? Who cares? Who's there?